Well, hey, good morning. As Taylor said, grab a Bible if you've got one with you, if you've got an electronic device. We're going to be in Isaiah, the 43rd and 44th chapters today. If you have a real Bible, those pages are probably going to be pretty shiny to you because we don't spend a lot of time in the book of Isaiah. Even as I was preparing this week to preach, I was looking and listening to a lot of the different uh, pastors that I will commonly listen to as I prepare for a message. None of them have preached on these passages, which makes me a little nervous when I get up here. But um, there's some things in Isaiah 43 that I think are important for us to hear today. Before we jump into the text, can I just bring um, the church family up to date on, on something that I want to pray for? Uh, many of you know, if you have children that have attended our church, uh, you know Tim and Janelle Lopez. Uh, Janelle has been our children's coordinator for the past eight years. If you have a kid in children's ministry, you should be grateful because everything that we do in children's ministry, she designed it, she created it, it has her fingerprints all over it. Well, last night, um, around 10 o'clock at night, Janelle rushed her husband, Tim Lopez, to the hospital. He had emergency open-heart surgery for what I understand it was a aortic dissection. And so she was at the hospital all last night with her husband, Tim. He went through the surgery. He is doing well, and he is in recovery. But obviously, this is not a, a light thing. It's a very serious thing. And uh, with her being so much um, a part of everything that we do here, can we just take a moment and pray for their family before we begin? Father, I thank you for um, a church family that, uh, that prays. And uh, when we're hurting and when we're scared and uh, when we need strength, uh, we count it a privilege to be able to come before you and to tell you exactly how we feel and to express our fears and our concerns. And we would pray boldly this morning that you would wrap your arms around Tim and Janelle, that you would give Tim healing, that you would give the doctors wisdom, and that you would give Janelle a uh, peace and a confidence that you are with us through every storm. Pray that you would uh, guard their family today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I don't know, um, kind of a heavy way to start the uh, service on a heavy weekend. Have you guys been watching uh, the TV shows and the remembrances of 9-11? Has anybody else been kind of watching those things over the last few days? Yeah, it's interesting in our house when those things are on. I, I had a busy weekend. I, I didn't get to see a ton of it. But if I had downtime, I would turn on the TV because I, I kind of gravitate to that. And um, just remembering the significance of that moment 20 years ago on 9-11, my wife has a different response. She doesn't like watching it. So when I'm watching it, she's like, why are we watching this? And I'm like, because I want to remember. And she's like, I'm trying to forget. And, you know, just the different responses that we even have in our home. But as we watched 9-11, all of us can kind of remember, if we're old enough, where we were. Can you guys remember what you were doing when you got the news? Um, that morning, I had just gone to work. And uh, typically in the mornings, because I was trading securities, I would have the news on the moment I got into work. But for some reason that morning, I didn't have the news on. I didn't have a TV on in my office. And um, I got a call from my wife, Kristen. She's like, hey, turn on the news. Something just happened. A, a, a plane threw, flew into a building in New York, and I remember going over the TV and seeing that initial um, coverage and being like, well, that's, that's just a, a crazy circumstance. And then there was the second plane. And all of a sudden, the reality that um, something very different was going on began to sink in, that this wasn't just an accident, that it was terrorism. Many of you guys will remember those same emotions. And um, 
I worked with my uh, nephew, Charlie, another man in our church. He's here this morning, Steve Bolwig. And we all kind of went over to my house and began watching the coverage there with my wife, the three of us. And I didn't watch it for very long. And I said, I'm going to go to the high school. Cal was a sophomore at Grand Haven High School. It was just down the road. And uh, I went to pick Cal up. And um, it was interesting when I got to the high school, I got into this weird um, conversation with one of the assistant principals. I, I walked into the administrative office. I said, hey, listen, I'm here. I, I need to find Calvin Wilson. I'm going to take him home. And the guy was like, why are you taking him home? And I was probably short and not thinking well, and he was kind of short and not thinking well with the confusion of everything that was going on. He's like, why are you taking him home? And I said, because I want him to see this. He's like, well, he's safe here. You don't have to worry about his safety. And I'm like, this isn't a safety thing. Like, I'm not thinking it's World Trade, Pentagon, Grand Haven High School. I'm not thinking that's the order this morning. I'm not worried about his safety. The world's never going to be the same. What's going on on TV, what we're watching right now, is going to change everything. I remember those were my emotions at that moment. You had this catalytic event that was so unique for my generation. We just didn't know war. I, I was born um, at a time where I was too young to really understand Vietnam, and that was over there somewhere anyways, and my big wars as I grew up were Grenada in the Falkland Islands, not huge engagements. And all of a sudden, you had this on our soil. It was different. It was jarring. And I'm wondering, how is it going to affect markets? I was in the hotel industry. How is it going to affect our hotels? And what's going to happen to travel? And all those selfish thoughts that you think. And I'm so far from the ripples of the tragedy that's going on in New York, but I'm still looking at the different ways that this is going to impact our lives. And in that moment, it's like, we're at war. There's a battle. There, there's people out there that hate our way of life, our values, our distinctives. A few years later, I was reminded I was in um, Baghdad seven or eight years later, and I remember I walked into the Al Rashid Hotel, and as you walk into the Al Rashid Hotel, there's a mural on the floor. It's a picture of President George Bush, and to enter the hotel, you've got to walk across his face. And um, again, reminded that, that, that there's some different viewpoints. There's some people that um, are hostile towards who we are. And it's interesting, 20 years go by, some of those feelings die down. I remember right after 9-11, uh, just the moments of increased um, American pride, of patriotism, of unity. Do you remember those days? And, and there's times 20 years later, feels a long, long time ago that we were all on the same team, all on the same side. And, and it's different today. 20 years later, I don't have that catalyst, catalytic thing to point to, that one event in time where you say, that changed everything. But there have been moments in the last two years, as I look at my life, as I look at our church, as I look at my family, I'm going, there are things going on in our world right now where things are never going to go back to normal. Do you ever feel that way? With, with the pandemic and the isolation and the civil unrest and the just the contentious spirit and the combative nobody can agree on anything and there's a rising hostility in our world and the reality that has be it Americans or 
in our case as a church, as followers of Jesus Christ, there's people that are hostile to our values. There are people that are hostile to our distinctives. There are people that are hostile to our worldview, the way and the lens in which we view our world. Uh, it's becoming more and more of a reality. And what's weighed on my heart and what's weighed on Cal's heart is he's been gone on sabbatical. He was back. He preached last night in Spring Lake. He'll be here next week. But as he's returned, the thing that he came out of sabbatical with is he said, I want to take our church this fall through a series that defines a Christian worldview. How do Christians view the world? How do they view culture? How do we see things through a biblical lens so that we keep ourselves anchored to something that is secure, that is something that will hold? So that's where we're going over the course of this fall, and it's going to start in the first few weeks going through some foundational, dare I say the word doctrines, some foundational doctrines that are really foundational to our, our, our worldview, to the way that we view things. So we're going to be looking at things like who is God and who is man and what is sin and salvation and just some basics for the first four or five weeks. And then we're going to flip it and we're going to look at how our faith, how our foundations now interact with our culture and on issues like sex and money and patriotism and, and a myriad of other issues that are um, places where Christians are running into hostility, where they're running into conflict, where they're running into contention. So that's kind of where we're headed in this study. And I would just encourage you, um, if you've been a, a member or an attender of Harvest, be it here at Spring Lake or in, or I mean here in Grand Haven or in Spring Lake, what I would say is this, I'd really encourage you in this season in our country, tune into this series. Because the heart of it is this, I just think as a country, as a church, and as individuals, I find us in need of revival, don't you? I just find us praying for revival, be that in our country, in our churches, and foremost in our hearts. So that's where we're going to be. We're going to be in Isaiah 44 this morning. I hate to jump into the middle of a book. Let me just give you some background on the book of Isaiah just quickly, maybe two minutes. Isaiah was a prophet. He was a prophet to the southern kingdom, to Judah, after Israel had split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And he was a prophet to the southern kingdom, Judah, for 50 years. He was there from 739 to 681 BC. So this is a guy that lived 2,700 years before our time. We're going way back in history. His name, Isaiah, means Jehovah saves. And his job was to call the nation of Judah to repentance and it's interesting, he prophesied to Judah in a time, it was before Babylon became on the scene where they were going to overthrow Judah. It was literally, there was some time of lingering prosperity from the days of David and Solomon. The people were relatively safe in Judah. Northern kingdom was having its own issues. But in Judah, they were safe, they were somewhat prosperous, and they had drifted from the Lord. And the book of Isaiah is interesting. There's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, there's 66 books in the Bible. In some ways, it's a little bit of a mere, a, a mini Bible because the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah have an Old Testament feel. It's presenting God as holy. It's saying that he's going to come and judge the nations. There's in the first 39 chapters, a chapter that many of you would know would be Isaiah 6. It's a picture into the throne room of God where Isaiah sees God in his full glory and God has presented as holy, righteous, and he's warning the nations and he's warning Judah, if you guys don't change, I'm going to judge. 
And then the New Testament part of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 66, the last chapters of the book of Isaiah have somewhat of a New Testament feel because though it still shows God is holy, though it still shows him in all of his glory, and there's still the warning of judgment, Isaiah is presenting the the hope of a Messiah. He presents him not only as a king of kings coming to someday reign, but also as a suffering servant. And in the New Testament part of Isaiah, after chapter 40, you've got that wonderful chapter, Isaiah um, 53, prophesying about the coming Messiah, that he'll be wounded for our transgressions, he'll be bruised for our iniquities. So you've got this Old Testament, New Testament, 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah, and we're jumping into the New Testament part. And, and what this part of the, these chapters are going to show you is though God is holy and he is supreme, he's also engaged with us. He's desirous of a relationship with us. His, he wants to be not just God, because he is God. He wants us to recognize him as God. So just to give you some background, to give you a flavor of what's going on, starting in Isaiah 40, these will be on the screen, don't scramble. It says in Isaiah verse 28, it says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He, doesn't, uh, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And then verse 29, he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. So Isaiah is constantly telling you something about our God and then how that something about our God is poured out onto us. He says in Isaiah 41 verse 10, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And then in Isaiah 43 verse 1, it says this, But now thus says the Lord, And this is one of the things that I love about Isaiah 43 and 44. We're not listening to Isaiah talk about God. You'll hear this over and over. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. As we study God this morning, we're looking in Isaiah 43 and 44 of God talking about who he is. And in Isaiah 43 verse 44, or Isaiah 43 verse 1, it says this. But now says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And as God is declaring who he is and saying that his desire is for his people, that he's the Redeemer, that he is their God, there's two problems that he's always having to address. Here's the first one. You're going to see this in Isaiah 43, verse 20. The first problem that God addresses is the problem of weariness. Weariness. It says this in Isaiah 43, verse 20. For I gave water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. So God is saying, listen, Uh, when you were in a dry land, I was the one that was sustaining you. I was the one that was providing for you. I was the one that was caring for you. You are my people. I've cared for you. The people who I formed for myself, get this, verse 21, the people that I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. There's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing that we can do to earn God's grace. What God asks, what he desires of us in response to his goodness in our lives 
Because he just desires our worship. He desires our praise. And he says, I've been sustaining you. What I've desired is for you to be my people, to be the people who will praise me. And then verse 22, yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You haven't brought me, brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I've not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. And, and, and please hear something. I don't think God needs our sacrifices. Would you agree? He doesn't need us to bring burnt offerings. Every lamb, every goat, everything that we could bring to offer, it's already his. He, he's not looking to burden us by requiring us to praise him or requiring us to worship him. He's saying, because I love you, I would expect that there'd be some response. God's desire is for our worship. He says this in verse 24. You have not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquity. So first he says this, you become weary of me, O Israel. And sadly, in our culture and in our context, I don't think what is happening is that people are making conscious decisions to move away from God. I think within the context of the pandemic, I think the context of fear of gatherings, the context of isolation, people are just growing weary. Do you sense that? It's not a, it's not a choice to say, I'm not going to follow God anymore. It's just a weariness of the choice that you've made to follow God. And he's saying, listen, you've grown weary of following me. It's interesting. He talks about them not bringing sacrifices. Quite honestly, that wasn't the case. And this time in Isaiah's reign, the sacrifices were still being offered. They were going through the motions. They were still religious people, but their hearts weren't in it. And he's saying, listen, you've grown weary of the process. You, you might be going through the motions of going to the temple. In our case, it would be going to the church. You might be going through the process. It might be part of your routine. But what's happened is because you've grown weary, your hearts are far from me. It wasn't unbelief. It wasn't open rebellion. It was weariness. And what God's saying is, while you're doing that, I'm still bearing the weight of your sin. And I'm growing weary of your weariness. You're drifting. Warning. You ever found yourself weary? You ever found yourself sleepy? I get older. I'm sleepy all the time. Sleepy all the time in the afternoon. But I'm talking when, when it matters, like, like when you're driving. Like I'm, I'm looking at a guy who drives trucks across country, and I'm thinking, you know, do you ever get weary when you're driving? Sometimes I do. You ever been driving and you have that terrifying moment where your head goes like this, and then you bob up, and it's like, what in the world just happened? And, and, and in those moments, what happens is you're, you're driving along, and you're getting tired, and and you have that snap. It's like, this is crazy. I'm in danger. Other people are in danger. Like, open the window, get some fresh air, take a break, figure it out. The, the car that I drive has this warning that if I drive three hours in a row, it puts up a notice. Hey, do you think you need to take a break? And I think I get why they do that. Because sometimes you grow weary, you grow tired. And God is talking to his people, the nation of Israel, and he's saying, hey, hey, there's a problem. There's a problem. 
in the midst of just life, you've grown weary of me. And here's the problem in the text. When they grow weary, here's some things that you can see. Verse 22, you don't call upon me. The people don't pray. You haven't brought me sheep for burnt offerings. They don't worship. They don't bring the sacrifices. And then it goes on in verse 24, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquity. When we grow weary of following the Lord, we don't pray, we don't worship, and we're not obedient. So, so here's kind of a, a, a little uh, self-test, okay? This is like those COVID tests that come in a box that sometimes you can find at Walgreens, Okay. Here's, here's a test. Are you weary of the Lord? Or have you drifted from the Lord? Well, here's three tells. Here's three indicators. How's your prayer life? How's your worship? How you doing? Are you obedient? Are you doing the things that he's called you to do? Like, like these are indicators of whether you've become weary of the Lord. It's interesting, Friedrich Nietzsche, and, and some of you would remember that name, he was a German philosopher that, that kind of was at the same time as Darwin. He took some of the Darwin things and he created a philosophy, and, and a lot of what he um, uh, developed actually led into a lot of the fundamental beliefs that took root in Germany and led to Nazism and a lot of atrocities. It's interesting, Friedrich Nietzsche grew up in a Christian home. And asking why he rejected Christianity, he said it this way, very simply. He goes, because I never saw the members of my father's church enjoying themselves. I looked at the people that went to church with my father. I'd go to church with my father every week, and I would look around, and what I saw was weary people. People that weren't enjoying themselves. People that were tired. People that had lost the joy of the Lord. And the question is, and the warning for us, is that us? Here's the second thing that God addresses in the text. The Lord says this in Isaiah 44, 9. The second problem is idolatry. He says, all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things that they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know, and they may be put to shame. Verse 10, who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all of his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall, uh, they shall be put to shame together. And what God's going to do in these next few verses, he's going to poke fun at those who put their hope in idols. And, and, and please, as we read these, don't get lost. Don't think idols are some, something that just sits on a shelf. Listen to how God describes the, artic, uh, the idols uh, in verses 12 and then the next few verses, here's what I would say. I don't want to overdevelop these ideas of idolatry from Isaiah 44, but I think there's some things hopefully that you can see. One of the things that I think is sometimes our idol is being able to do things in our own strength. It says in verse 12, the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. And I was thinking about that. There, I, I saw this picture of an ironsmith. And, and here's what I would say. Anybody who works with iron, anybody who is a, a, a guy like that, he's stronger than me, no questions asked, okay? He's a guy that's working with heavy tools. He's pounding hammers and anvils to, to shape steel that's under heat. Like, like these guys have some strength. It says it right in the text, this idea that he works with his strong arm. But if his hope is in his strength, even the strong man will find himself in a position, and the text is clear, where the, his own strength 
fails him. I think sometimes, particularly in our culture, we tend to default to gravitate to doing things in our own strength. I can take care of myself. I can take care of my own. I can navigate my own issues. I don't need your help. Sadly, this summer I sat with a man who was struggling with, with his temper. And there wasn't a lot of victory. And, and, and I looked at him and I said, how's it going? And he's like, not well. I said, what are you doing about it? He goes, I need help. Can I help? Can the church help? No, not you. Then who? I'll figure it out. It's what I've always done. Don't need help. Work my way out of it. That's just my way. And there's something in the American spirit, in our spirit of independence, that we're very slow to ask for help. Would you agree? But the problem is often we need help. And sometimes we're even slow to call on the Lord for help. Sometimes trusting in our own strength can be an idol. Here's another one that I see in the text, verse 13. It says, the carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. So, so I, I was looking at this and I'm thinking not only our strength, but our intellect. The picture there is a carpenter. He's working with angles. He's working with tools. He's designing something. He's creating something, trusting in his own intellect. But before you know it, he's using that very same intellect that he would as a carpenter, and he's designing idols for himself. All of a sudden, we believe that we can trust in our own ability to work our way out of our own problems, out of our own difficulties, out of our own sin bends. Prayer becomes a last resort for us. We, we still come to church. It's not that we've quit worshiping. It's just we spend all of our time in church thinking about what's going on in our lives and in our weeks. And this is like the quiet 40 minutes while I'm talking that you can kind of think through all of life issues and go, oh, finally I get a time to think and contemplate. I know I used to sit where you did. And all of a sudden we're trusting in our own intellect rather than going to prayer, getting on our knees and worshiping a creator who is saying, listen, I'm for you. I'm your God. And then the third one in verse 14, it's kind of our own comfort. He says this in verse 14. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. This man, he plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for the man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half of it he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. What a ridiculous picture. One guy from the same piece of wood saying, I'm going to use a part of it to make a fire to warm myself. I'm going to use another part of it to bake my bread. And then the third part of it, I'm going to make an idol. And in making that idol, I'm going to fall down and worship it. And you'd say, what a fool. Just be careful. I think sometimes we're close as we look at the things in our lives and the thing that we desire most is to be comfortable and we take the very same things that we believe will give us comfort and they become the idols in our lives. It's really interesting. The, the simplest thing, if you're, if you're struggling, if it gives you comfort, it can become a really big deal to you. My wife and I like watching um, a survivalist show. There's actually several seasons called Alone. Have any of you guys watched that? 
It's, it's stone cold crazy. They send survivalists out into like Canada or Alaska. They've got no shelter. They've got no food. And um, they're like, hey, we'll see you in 100 days if you can make it. But here's a button on, on, a, on an emergency phone. Anytime you hit that, we'll call and pick you up. So they're alone. They're cold. They don't have a shelter. They usually drop them off where there's like grizzly bears and that kind of stuff. So they're scared. And they're trying to survive in the wilderness. And they're hungry. And then like one of them will catch a fish. And what happens when they catch a fish is they'll drop to their knees and they'll start to cry because they're so excited about this fish because they've been so hungry and finally it's going to give them some comfort. And as they get the fish, they're like, oh, thank you, fish. You're the best fish I've ever seen. Sorry to kill you, fish. Thanks for giving your life so that... I'm like, really? It's the fish thing. Like, like the fish is the thing that you're thanking. Like, like you've got a creator God watching over you, protecting you, and I don't think that fish bites your make-believe lure or that thing that you made unless God's in that to begin with. But all of our attention, all of our focus is on the things that make us happy in the moment and in focusing on comfort in the temporal things, we forget to actually worship the creator of all of the things that he's given us for our comfort and for our good. So those are the two problems. Let's get to the remedy Look at Isaiah 44, verse 1 and 2. This is the heart of our text. God says this, But hear now, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Here's the first thing that I want you to see. The remedy is this. Is there a God beside me? And the first thing that we see in the text from Isaiah 44 is this. Number one, you belong to me. Look at what he says in the text. Whom I have chosen... Then he goes on and says, thus says the Lord who made you. If I were taking near the end of Isaiah 44, in verse 21, it says, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. So what's happening in Isaiah 44 in the first couple verses, he's saying, you're mine. You belong to me. I made you. I am your creator, God. You were made for me. Earlier we saw that we were made not just by him, but to declare his praise. That is our purpose in life. And it is his rightful spot. He has the authority because he is the creator. He made us. But he doesn't just own us because he made us. He also owns us because he chose us. Please hear me, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, that has very little to do with you and it has way more to do with God's choice of you than your choice of him. You never recognize your sin until the Holy Spirit moves and convicts you of your sin. And please hear me, the creator God of the universe didn't just make you, he chose you this morning if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. I've taught this before in this church, and usually at this point I go, you know, a lot of you in this room, you've never been chosen for anything, and I just ream on you. And I've got to preach in a few weeks, and my, my brother-in-law down in Florida asked me to preach down there the first week of October, and I'm, I was like, sure, if it's a help to you, I'm glad to preach. He goes, listen, you can't talk to my people the way you talk to your people. Like, like, like these are nice people. They're not going to get your humor. You can't deride my congregation like you do yours. So I'm not going after you at the you've never even been chosen in junior high dodgeball. I won't do that to you this morning. The creator God of the universe chose you. He made you. He chose you. But he also redeemed you. 
That's three different claims of ownership over each one of us. And that redemption of us, which is at the beginning of Isaiah 43, and it's at the end of chapter 44, it's mentioned twice. Here's what he's saying. I bought you with a price. I sent my son. You were redeemed with his blood, with his sacrifice. Though you are guilty, you are declared innocent, not because you are innocent, but because my son paid the price for you. You were bought out of your slavery to sin. And what God is saying is this. He says, there is a remedy. We need to wake up, get away from our weariness, put the idols down for a minute, and understand that our worldview, the lens in which we see our universe, ourselves, and the things that God has entrusted to us, be that our wealth, our family, whatever, they belong to the Lord. We are His. Here's the second thing. You'll see this at the end of verse 2, that His desire is to bless us. It says, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's, and another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, a name himself, and name himself by the name of Israel. How different would our lives be as we engage with culture if we left this place and had the identity as people that were created, made, and redeemed by God, and we fully believed the promises of God that he is actually for his people, that he wants us to be identified in our relationship with him. We actually believe that God was for us, that God was for our family, that our identity was rooted in our relationship with Jesus Christ. But here's the truth. We have this weird compulsive thing inside of us that we want to deserve the good that we get. We, we, we want to earn right standing before God. Somehow it bothers us that it's given to us through His grace. I, I was with a man this weekend. He's not from our church. And we were talking about church and I hadn't met him before he figured out I was a pastor and then he gets all awkward. And um, in that moment as we were talking, he was talking about church. He goes, well, I know a lot of church people go to church on the weekends to feel good about themselves, to make God like them. No, no, you got that completely backwards. People who understand the nature of who God is, that he's chose us, made us, and redeemed us, they go to church in response to what he's done, not never to earn his favor. Here's a th some things that I see here, this idea of God desiring to bless us. As Cal looked at this in chapter, in, in the third point, here was my third point in my notes. It says, there is no other rock. So if you're keeping notes, the remedy, is there a God besides me? You belong to me. My desire is to bless you. And then look at verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Beside me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let him declare what is to come and what will happen. Verse 8, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Hear this. There is no rock. I know not any. There is no other rock. God is supreme. He is supreme in creation. He is supreme in title. Look at verse 6. It says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. 
Words that we normally wouldn't focus on, but I want you to see a repeated word three times. See that word, the? He's saying, I am the Lord, the King, the Lord of hosts. Not a Lord, not a King, not a King of hosts. The Lord. It is exclusive. I alone am your God. He is supreme in existence. It says in Verse 6, I am the first and the last. Beside me there is no God. He is first. He is last. This whole thing is his story. Then fourth, we see him as supreme in authority. Verse 7 says, who is like me? Let him proclaim it. He's taunting. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. He says, listen, I'm God who's in control of everything. I am supremely in authority. Here's the problem. That's the thing that creates the offense of Christianity. This isn't new in our culture. It's always been the case. Nobody's going to be offended if you say that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. What gets and creates an offense is this. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and I believe that he is the only God, that he is the only rock, that apart from him there is no salvation. You start declaring that, man, man then you got trouble. See, see, in this room, just to give it by, by way of illustration, it's hard for me to see faces in this room, but I look at, um, I saw Brett, no, Brett's doing the kids thing. So Randy, I look at you. So I don't know a ton about you, but I know that you do computer sales. And so you got to know something about numbers and you got to know sales and like sales is your God. Like that's your thing. That's the thing that you worship, as sad and terrible as that would be, but that's what you do. And I saw Bob earlier, and Bob works on cooling equipment and cooling supplies, and, and maybe he's just, the thing that he worships is air conditioning units, okay? And, and, and I love to golf, so the thing that I worship is golf. So I'm worshiping golf, and you're worshiping um, your thing in computers and numbers and sales, and Bob's worshiping electrical or, or furnaces and air conditioners. As weird as that would be, we could all get along, and I could let him worship his thing, and I could worship my thing, and Randy could worship his thing. But the minute that Randy goes, no, 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 we only get along if you're willing to acknowledge that all of life, the entire meaning of life is computer sales. Like if he demands that of our relationship, guess what? Now you and me got problems, right? Because we serve different gods. And what God is saying in this passage is he's saying, I am exclusive. I have authority. There's nobody like me. And sadly, what I would say is, if you feel this morning like you're far from God, like you've been weary, that you've been drifting, the cause of that almost exclusively is idolatry in some way has your heart whether you know it or not. Ray Ortman, he wrote a commentary on Isaiah on this passage, and here's what he says. He says this, it's idolatry, not God, that's wearisome. He says the central theological principle of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry. Then he says, think about it. If there's only one God, if we are not experiencing his reviving fullness, there is, a, there is a reason. And that reason is this. Idols are clogging the inflow of God's refresh, refreshment. The exclusive reality of God forces the question of idolatry. We need to think about this because our world is crowded with idols. And what God is saying in Isaiah 44 is, if I feel distance from you, if you've drifted from me, if you're weary... Check out your heart, man. Are there idols in your heart that are owning you? 
And God is also supreme in strength. Look at verse 8. Fear not. Do not be afraid. There is no God beside me. There is no rock. So here's my question this morning. As we read what God says about himself in Isaiah 43 or 44, the question that's forced upon us as we consider our Christian worldview, is God our rock? Is he our foundation? Is he our strength? It says, fear not. As you look at some of the things going on in our country, some of the things in our culture, are you consumed by fear? Are you consumed by worry? Or do you say, in the midst of this storm, in the midst of any storm, God is a rock. What is our appropriate response? And I would point out two things. Absolute worship. God's looked at the people. He says, listen, the sacrifices that you're offering, you might be bringing them, but I don't have your heart. If God is who he says he is, if God is not just a God who is creator God, but he's for us, he's desirous of a relationship with us, how does that impact the way that we live every day? How does that impact our priorities? How does that impact our outlook? Simple, like what makes you happy? As you come in here this morning, are you happy to be here in the presence of a God who has chosen you, redeemed you, made you, and loved you? Or are you just kind of fired up because Ohio State lost? Or Michigan won? And I think I just proved my point, right? Demands our absolute worship. And here's another thing, demands our absolute surrender. So what in the world does this have to do with cultural worldviews? We'll have plenty of time to talk about what's going on out there. But the truth is, in this battle of viewpoints, in this battle of worldviews in this val in this battle of values and what's important and what's supreme the battle's really not out there first and foremost it's here it's in our hearts it's what we hold to be dear it's what we hold to be true it's what we hold to be supreme are we marked by absolute worship is that what somebody would say as they looked at our life from the outside and are we marked by absolute surrender The New Testament knows nothing of a follower of Jesus Christ that isn't absolutely surrendered to him in the gospel. Let's not fool ourselves and believe that we can leave here on a Sunday afternoon and go back into a culture that's adversarial against Jesus Christ and the things that we value and the things that we're called and the way that we're told to live as followers of Jesus Christ. Our culture's adversarial to that. Are we surrendered to Jesus or are we surrendering to the culture? And before we address anything out there, we've got to address the issues of our hearts. What has priority? What's paramount? What matters most? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for a passage um, that maybe now I've preached all that often and maybe not that well known. We can go to the middle of the book of Isaiah in the middle of the Old Testament and read these words, thus says the Lord. Because that means that you're calling to us. That means that you're reaching out. That means that you're making yourself known. 
and not just who you are, but how you love us. What an awesome thing to have the creator of the universe express his desire for our praise. In some ways so insignificant and yet so beautiful that you would care enough to plead with us to make you first and foremost. Father, let us give you the rightful place that you deserve, that you've demonstrated. Father, let us be grateful for the sacrifice that you made to redeem us so that you could call us your own. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.